I uh, sure feel good being back home after being gone about three weeks. Uh, I felt Nelson did a very good job of giving a couple of sermons, and and the one he chose for last week I felt was uh, as good as he could have done uh, about Purim and the meaning of it, and especially for us in this end time. And since he's done that, I'm not going to spend any time today really going over it. I think it should have become abundantly clear uh, what we should be getting out of Purim, God's deliverance, uh, our seeking Him, and being delivered as we shall be. So it has great and rich meaning, and of course it starts tomorrow night. Uh, We have a nice meal for the beginning of it. Uh, dinner tomorrow night at 6.30. I think you said 6.30. Be sure it wasn't 6. Uh, so 6.30 tomorrow evening, the beginning of Purim. Let's be turning to John 15. <clears throat> John 15. Having to do with fruit. Uh, We're told that we should bear much fruit, and I think it's in this very uh, passage, and we need to understand what that means. How do you do that? How do you go about it? Let's read in John 15, 1, what Christ says here. I am the true vine, my father is the husbandman. So he's drawing an analogy between a vineyard and his father and himself, that we are to learn uh, from this analogy that he's drawing, this example. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes away. So the father is there, he's the husbandman, and if we don't bear fruit, he takes us away, every branch. And every branch that bears fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Purges means pruned in our modern language. And indeed, with a a vineyard, you prune it every year because that which grew and produced does not produce any more the next year. You need new growth in order to have new fruit come on it. So... Uh, A branch that has produced and is no longer producing has to go away and be replaced because there needs to be growth. Now, that's important for us to understand that principle here. Uh, Sometimes when we feel pruned or nipped or chastened or in some way cut back, uh, it could make us feel uh, bad. And yet, on the other hand, if it produces something from that, makes it more productive, then that's what you need to do. If you don't prune your vineyard, it doesn't produce very much after that. Then he says, now you are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. The words that he had been giving them, teaching them as they traveled together, lived together, whether it was in a house or out of doors, They were together almost 24-7, 
Uh, Christ did sometimes say he went off up in the mountain by himself to find a place to pray where it was quiet. Uh, no yakking and talking, whether it be just the disciples or people who are around. We need quiet time, private time, our own time to be with God. Uh, it's hard to do that if there's always someone there. So we have to make time and space uh, to be alone with God. And he even instructed us that when we pray to go into our closet to pray. A closet generally is an enclosed place, and there's no people around. You can't see people. You can't hear people. Uh, there at the college in the dormitories, they took a place downstairs or somewhere that wasn't uh, a needful living space and made little closets. We call them prayer booths or prayer closets, uh, depending. But it was just a small area, had a light and a fan. And each one, well, they were only, I don't know, three or four feet by five or six feet. Uh, so you could go in there, turn the fan on, and not hear people talking and walking by very much, and have a space where you could be with God. And he did that, and, and says that we should do the same thing. So we're clean through the word which he had spoken. His words, then, are a cleansing thing. Uh, you take this whole book, and it's here to cleanse. All the things that he said are here to help us have clean minds and bodies, uh, clean spiritually, clean every way. He says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine." No more can you except you abide in me. So this is a beautiful analogy. If you have a branch that's clipped off from the rootstock, uh, it just withers up and dies. It has to be connected. And it's important so much that we be connected with the Father and the Son. And that connection comes through prayer, through Bible study, reading his words that do cleanse, because we need to be clean if we are to be with him. He is clean, and he does not allow filthiness. Uh, he even says there in Revelation, when his kingdom is set up, that people can come, they can enter the holy city, but not if they're unclean. Uh, he mentions the category of adulterers and thieves and so on who are unclean spiritually, and they're not allowed in. That's what makes that song, The Holy City, uh, become a bit of a problem. We have to change the words on some of it. A lot of it's true. Most of it's true. But it says, and all who would might enter. I've mentioned this before. That's not what the Scripture says at all. Uh, you can't go in if you're not cleansed, if you're not pure. And there will still be around people around who are not, and they won't be allowed in there. Well, God is generous, and he's kind, and he's nice, but he doesn't put up with filthiness and uncleanness. So we have to be connected with him if we're going to be clean through his words. Uh, we just recently had a sermon about, or two of them, about Bible study, which was good, and that is our primary connection with God is 
reading his words, understanding them, and through talking to him about those words. So you've got to be connected. He says, uh, Abide in me, and I in him. The same brings forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. Now can you do anything without Christ? Not really on any level. It's the breath of air he gives you and your heart pounding that allows you to even stand upright and live. So without that, which comes from him, we can do nothing. But he's speaking here in a much larger sense of a lot of things that we need to be doing and can be doing, but we don't have the capacity to so do without his direct involvement. Now, since he gave you the breath of life, you can cook dinner, and you can build a house, and you can do those physical things because he did give you life and intelligence and ability to do things. But they aren't things that are important that last, because even you will not last beyond a certain point. I've been joking lately with people about how I'm way past my, uh, what do they put on food, the... My expiration date, I'm, I'm way past it. But then I add, but just because that expiration date's passed doesn't mean it's totally bad. It can, it can still be pretty decent for food for a while uh, before it loses all capacity to be worth anything. But without him, we really can do nothing, and certainly nothing beyond this physical life. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch. Now, that abide means what? Live with. Be with. Abide with. We need a close connection with, in other words. A branch has a pretty close connection to a vine, doesn't it? It grows out of the vine and as it gets bigger and bigger and grows, it becomes a very strong connection. Now, if a leaf comes out of a branch, you can pluck it off pretty easily, just, and you've got it. But once it grows into a vine of any size, it becomes very, very hard to pull off. You have to cut it <clears throat> to get it off of the vine. So when he, when he says, abide with me, that means... You live with him. You pay attention to him. If people live together, do they not talk often with each other? Now, some people talk more than others. Some people are a machine gun and never shut up. And some, you have to pull the trigger real hard to get them to say anything. But generally speaking, if we live together with someone, uh, we're friends with them, we can be mates with them, uh, our children abide with us, and, and all these are different relationships, but they all require close contact and close communication. And we need close communication with Christ. If a man abides not with me, he is cast as a branch and is withered, as I said. 
and then gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. So when you clean out your vineyard in the fall, or whenever you do it, before the next growing season anyway, uh, you've got a bunch of dead wood, so you stack it up and you burn it. It becomes of no use if it's not connected. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, so we have a relationship that we have to do, and that is to abide with him. Not live somewhere off far away from him, not have his word with us, but not doing anything with it. It's just there. Herbert Armstrong used to say, get your Bible, blow the dust off, open it up and read it. Uh, you abode with it in the house, but you weren't abiding with what it said because you had no clue what it said or what it meant. So abiding is more than just being in the immediate neighborhood. <laughs> there has to be communication there. And then his words have to abide in us. And if we don't read them and understand them, read them over and over again because we forget them so easily, don't we? Uh, his words have to abide in us. It takes communication in terms of our communication toward him and his toward us in these words. That way you have a two-way communication. He made it clear that he would not speak much with us after he went back to his Father in heaven. He told his disciples that in so many words. I will not speak much with you. And so, he has very rarely spoken to mankind in an audible way ever since. Even in dreams and visions and so on, it's pretty rare. Uh, he did come back to the disciples and visit with them. He came back and taught Paul since he had missed that three and a half years with the other uh, apostles. So there were times when he did come, and uh, he does say he's going to come to the remnant church here in the end time there in Zechariah and Haggai, and dwell with us. Be on sight, not just in heaven, but abiding with us, uh, directing what's going on. Whether visible or invisible matters not. The fact that his presence is there is what is important. Now, if we are abiding in him and his words are in us, in our minds, our hearts, ask what you will and it shall be done to you. Now, this implies pretty strongly here that it needs to be an intelligent conversation. Uh, abiding with means you talk about important things. You talk about things, let's say a husband and a wife, you talk about things that have to do with your relationship, with your home, with your children, with your cars, with your animals, with everything there is. You talk about those things. And some of it is everyday stuff and fairly trivial and mundane. You just talk about the events of the day. But then sometimes it comes up to relationships. And one or the other of you will want to talk something about your relationship. Usually it's something that isn't as good about it as it ought to be, or you wouldn't be wanting to 
talk about it, or the other in in the partnership uh, wouldn't mind listening. If it's something wonderful about your relationship, that's easy to say. But when there's a gnarly spot, then it becomes difficult to communicate because you want to say what you feel you need to say, but you don't know how to say it in such a way that your mate will accept it and be willing to talk about it, and you can resolve it. Uh, then's when it gets difficult. So, God isn't interested in just pity patter all the time. Uh, he talks about vain repetition. You know, you go in to pray to God, and it's just same old, same old stuff, maybe not too important as stuff, and just repeat it over and over. Or like the Catholics, you have the rosary and you just make a few trips around the beads. It doesn't mean anything. <coughs> it's empty. <clears throat> but the more important things in life require some thought, some uh, another huge tool and closeness to God and abiding in Him is meditation, where you think about the things you read and try to understand them in terms of your relationship with Him, because that's what it's all about. It's not just a set of rules you follow. The rules are there to help establish a relationship. That's what the rules are about. And husband and wife can make some of their own rules, or sometimes they make up vows before they get married. I will do this, I will do that, I will not do this or that. Uh, so that it's not just God's law or man's ordinances, but it's promises they make in terms of conduct that is important to them. You see, there are a lot of laws man makes, driving laws, anything you want to name, there's thousands and thousands of them, and most of the time when you're driving, those thousands of rules don't make much difference. But when you're getting married to somebody, you're going to be living with them, sleeping with them, uh, be together in every way. And therefore, there are certain things that might be important to the girl or to the guy that they want made sure we both understand. <laughs> this is how we can get along with each other and love each other and not have so many problems. Uh, the problem with that is a lot of it's like New Year's resolutions. By January 3rd, it's <laughs> kind of forgotten. And, uh, yeah, we were sincere in those things we might have said to each other. That hasn't been a practice in the church for people to uh, read a list of things that they expect of each other. Uh, they can do that privately. Uh, what really counts is this uh, in the long run. So that's something that some people do. Well, fine. Then you've got to live up to it. And we make a covenant with God, and he's talking about that right here. Then we have to live up to it. So he says, if you abide in me and I in you, you'll ask what you will and it shall be done to you. In other words, he's agreeable. He's willing. If you are asking according to his will, is the way he puts it in another place, it will be done. So you have to know his will. Otherwise, you might be asking something that's contrary to his will, and he won't do it. 
His will for you varies. Sometimes He's willing to do things for you that are wonderful and good and perfect gifts. And sometimes He withholds things because there might be something you need to learn or something you need to be doing. Or in His working with you, He treats you different ways at different times in order to get the response He wants, like you do with your children. You work different ways to get the response that you need from that child to show He's cooperative and helpful and loving and all those things that He needs to be, rather than self-centered, selfish, and mine all the time. Well, I want to do what I want to do. And those attitudes have to be trained out of them, or it will affect them as adults, and they'll be that way all their life. Which is why people are the way people are today, because it does stay with them. And most parents don't know how to change those things. Here is a book that gives you an awful lot of guidance in how. All right, he goes on to say, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. Us bearing much fruit pleases God. And pleasing God is a wonderful thing to do. You read all through the Bible and you find where people pleased God and things went well. You find places where they didn't displease God and things didn't go well at all. And you have those examples over and over and over and over again. Because it is a very important point. So he goes on to say then, My Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. We sing, we say, glory to God, praise to God. And that means something to him only if we love him and bear much fruit. If we don't bear any fruit, then all our words of praise mean nothing. Because they're empty, hypocritical, things we just say because we've been taught we ought to. But it's not from the heart. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you in the same manner. Continue you in my love. Now, when he was here, he helped, he healed, he encouraged, he strengthened, uh, and a lot more things we're going to get to in this sermon are the ones to follow, because you already see I'm not going to get this done in one day. These things have I spoken to you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. God wants us to live lives full of joy. And he's giving us a groundwork here of how that can be produced. And bearing fruit, because this is all about a vine and fruit, this whole thing. So bearing much fruit is what will help create joy in our lives. So this becomes a very, very important issue, does it not? It determines our discipleship. It determines the quality of life, the joy or not having joy. There's much involved here. And glorifying God is a very important thing that we must do. 
And that glorifies him as if we produce much fruit. <clears throat> Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, abiding in love is key in our relationship with each other and our relationship with God. You know, people sometimes abide together or live together, but there's not a whole lot of love there. Uh, there might have been some emotion and some at first, and then the way we live, the way they live, it begins to kind of die out because it's not nurtured and we don't do the things that are necessary to keep it alive, so it dies. And that's the way most marriages in the world go. People get all excited about each other and think, oh, this will be wonderful, we'll be happy forever, evermore, before the divorce three years later. Because they can't stand each other anymore. Uh, whatever it was that they liked uh, hasn't turned out to be continual, or they misread what they thought the person was. You know, they get married sometimes after all, knowing each other two, three, four weeks. You don't know them yet. <laughs> that doesn't come till later on. And sometimes even if you date and become familiar with each other over a pretty good period of time, you still don't know them until you live with them day in and day out, night in and night out. And you learn things that Sometimes they're difficult, and that love can begin to diminish. The affection can be, begin to diminish, and you have to work at keeping it alive. Because if it is not worked at, if it's not fed properly, it will eventually die. Anything that's going to live has to be fed properly, otherwise it'll get sick and die. And marriages. All kinds of relationships are involved in that. So he says we have to continue in his love and abide in it. So you have to work in your relationship with God. It is a relationship that needs to be very close. I've been thinking about that a lot over the last two, three, four years. More so than I may have way back when, that it needs to be a very personal relationship. I need to be able to talk to God in many respects. Him as my father. We've all had human fathers. Some of us grew up as a father may have died or we may not even know who he was. So we may not have had that opportunity to have a physical father. That diminishes us in our lives. It, it causes a lack there, a lack of knowledge of what a relationship with a father ought to be. And also often with human fathers, they don't know how to live in the first place, and having a relationship with somebody who doesn't even know how to be a father can be very difficult. And all of our fathers, whoever they were, uh, none of them were perfect. Uh, they had some good points maybe and some bad ones. And we learned from that, and we had to be careful. And we didn't know as a child really how to develop the relationship. We started out wanting it, 
you know, and how we'd look up at our father, and man, he was a lot bigger than I was, and and uh, he was important, and everything he wanted, I wanted, and I wanted to be like him when I grew up. Then when you grow up, sometimes you're not so happy you wanted to be like him. But uh, you ever see a girl that wanted to be like her mother? You ever see one that liked to be compared to her mother? They're very rare. They don't care for that. But wouldn't it be nice if fathers and mothers understood relationships to the point that their children really would want to be like them? And even as they get older, because the parent was what they ought to be. Now, with God, we have that, but we don't see him every day. Uh, But he's the perfect parent. He knows exactly what to say, what to do, what he said here, every word is true. He knows how to treat us, whether it's with kindness and love and gentleness, or whether it's uh, chastening or whatever. He has the perfect balance on it. He is kind and loving and patient and all those things we'd like to be but fall short of. He's all those things. So we read about him here and how he reacts. And then we learn how a father should be. Because we know he's going to act according to this. And then we act toward our children according to this and how he treats us. So it's a relationship that we have to build with him so that we don't just repeat our Father in heaven, but when we speak of him, we speak in terms of closeness, of love, of abiding, living together, so that it becomes a very personal thing. God is not just a shapeless entity out there. A man is shaped just like God. In his image. And a woman is shaped very close to that. A few improvements, but very close to that. And God wants us to understand that. So that we can be close. And then he explains how. When I was going on with Christ, we have our father and we have an older brother. And we interact with our siblings as we're growing up. We abide in the same house, maybe in the same room, same kitchen table, everything. And we're there to learn to get along well with each other. And parents get exasperated because their siblings fight and quarrel and argue and are selfish and all the things kids do that make you want to give them away some days. Uh, Send them to grandma or something. but they're there to learn to abide together in peace. And you spend a lot of your time when your kids are young trying to get them to abide in peace, and you've got an uphill battle all the way. It's just difficult. Because they're carnal and selfish and want what they want, they don't care what their brother wants or their sister. But these are relationships that need to grow. Parents are there to help it grow. The mother uh, isn't a spiritual being in the kingdom of God. The mother is the church. Paul made that very clear in Galatians. And the church does not come between 
the Father and the Son. That is an important thing I went over not too long ago, and we heard it in a sermon on a tape not long ago. But in an organizational chart, the mother, the ministry, does not come between you and God. A worldwide bought that to some degree or another, and you had to go through the local minister, through the district superintendent, through Pasadena, uh, before you could get to Christ and the Father. <laughs> no, that is totally wrong. If you have an organizational chart, it's the Father and the Son and you. When that veil of the temple was rent in twain, it gave you direct access to the Father through the Son, 24-7. And the, the church is not in any way there to be, be between you and God. The church in an organizational chart would be off to the side. You would have Father, Son, arrow down to you, and off to the side you'd have the mother with an arrow to the mother, and then back to God. Because the mother is there for what? To point her children to their father. The father is the lead figure in a family. God put him in charge, and he put the woman to be subject to him. And the children, she spends most of the time with, she does the majority of the child-rearing because the father's off at work or whatever, so it falls on her. So her job is to help the relationship between the children and their father. And she should not ever deny or try to deny children going directly to their dad because they have that right just as in the spiritual analogy. We go straight to the Father in heaven through Christ. And our children should be able to come straight to their father without the mother interfering. I've seen it where it's difficult that way. Maybe the father was giving some discipline and the mother thought it was at the wrong time or it was too harsh or it was too whatever. And so she's there pleading and crying and trying to intervene. And that's not her job. Her job is to do the best she can to make that child in the image of God and the image of her husband as he is supposed to be. Maybe not as he is, but as he is supposed to be. Because he has a great responsibility <clears throat> to be as God to that child. To, to act and react as God would. And the mother is there to teach that child to act and react as God the Father and our brother Jesus Christ are. So she has a very important responsibility. And the parents have to understand this. In the human realm, we have problems in that a lot of men don't understand the relationship of what a husband ought to be or a father ought to be. Most kids in this world grow up without knowledge of how God says to be, and their parents don't know how God is, and they're the way they are. And their kids grow up to be a lot like their parents. And uh, that's tragic <laughs> in this world for the most part. 
So the father in the family has to take responsibility. Taking charge is one thing. Taking responsibility is an entirely different ballgame. God is responsible. He's kind, he's loving, he's gentle, he's patient uh, with all of us. And a father needs to be those things. He doesn't need a quick temper. He doesn't need to be quick to uh, get on or put the kid down and all that kind of stuff that a lot of fathers do. And the mother <clears throat> is told by God to be in submission to her husband. And guys, you know, sometimes we make that a tough chore. That can be a tough chore. If you're a jerk and she's supposed to be in submission to you, she's got a foot. What a job that is. Good morning, jerk. Are you ready for breakfast? <laughs> you know? Uh, she's to serve him, to help him, to be his helpmate. Uh, he needs to make that as easy for her as he can. And for her to be his helpmate, she needs to be as cooperative and as helpful and as serving as she can be. So you're both working at being like Christ and like the Father. And if you can accomplish that, then your relationship together is going to be better, and your relationship with your kids will be better. So this whole thing is about relationships. Ours with God and He with us, and then treating each other the way they treat each other and treat us. He explains it a little more here as he goes on. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. Now here's the critical key to abiding with him. If we keep his commandments, then he wants to live with us. If we don't keep his commandments, he doesn't want anything to do with us. And ultimately, those who keep his commandments will be in his kingdom, and those who don't will be in the lake of fire. Because he's not going to live with that. So we need to be sure we're keeping his commandments so we can have a close abiding relationship with him, and so we can have a close abiding relationship with each other, in our relationships, primarily the family, but then out beyond that, employment and everywhere else. You keep them, you'll abide in his love. These things have I spoken to you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. He wants us to be joyous, happy all over as much as possible. And the things we do, the things we think, the way we live sometimes makes that difficult. But if we're within the law of God, those things come easier. Same with your family. Your children, you'd like to have them full of joy and happiness and respect and love and kindness and uh, hugs and kisses and all those things that are nice to have with our children. But if they don't keep the rules you made in the family, which are ultimately God's rules, uh, it takes a lot of the joy out of it, doesn't it? How much joy do you find or see when some kid in the supermarket kicks his mother or his father in the shins and reaches up and says, I'm going to have that, whether you like it or not, throws a fit. Oh, joy, joy, joy. 
But if he's well-disciplined and under control and loves his parent and has been taught, taught not to be disrespectful, then there's a lot more joy in it. So that's the way it is with God. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So this comes down to, if we're abiding with him and in him, connected to the branch, then we will <clears throat> keep his commandments and love one another. That's where this all heads in the story about the vine and the branch and him and us. Grapevine is a beautiful analogy. You've got to be connected you got to have His Spirit flowing through you like the juice flows through the vine to nourish the fruit. And we have to have that connection. So, I'm not telling you here, you should ought to study the Bible. You should ought to pray. Uh, you know, we used to have, worldwide, we called them, you should ought to sermons. Get up and tell people everything they ought to do. Well, there's more to it than that. Uh, here we have an example of how things work, and without saying, you better go home and study your Bible, you better go home and pray, uh, it gives us an example and a beautiful analogy of how things really work, and that we have to have that communication, and it entices us as we read it to go do the Bible study and the prayer so that we can have this connection that we want. So, it isn't a matter of complying with the rules. It's a matter of understanding relationships and doing what is necessary to make relationships work. And he's explaining that to us here. An hour of Bible study doesn't do you one whit of good if while you read those words, you're thinking about something else over here somewhere. If you're thinking about your relationship with God and how it can be better if you do what it says right here, then you're making some progress because you're learning how to get along with Him, how to live with Him. And He's explaining it to you. This is what you need to do. It's what we've been reading so far today. Now, I'm going to hit one more here. This one is in John 12. Then we're going to go somewhere else. Tied in with it. John 12. And here we begin at about verse 23. <clears throat> uh, there were Greeks there wanting to worship and so on. And the disciples came to tell Christ about it. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. He had his mind on something far more important than the arguments with the Greeks. So he put it in focus. Time for me to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. He that loves his life shall lose it. And he that hates his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. 
If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this, this cause came I to this hour. He said, God had a cause in bringing me to the point I have to die and be glorified. And I'm not going to say, don't do this. Now, he didn't say, if it were possible, let this cup depart from him. There, he was expressing his human feeling about having to be tortured and die. But in that, he did not ask his father to take it away from him. He just said, here's how I'm feeling, Father. This is tough. Don't take it from me. I know i got to go through it, but I just wanted to tell you how it feels. And sometimes we have to express our feelings, don't we? Let them be known how we feel towards somebody, something. Uh, sometimes it has to be said. Now let's go back and look at this a little bit. It was his time to be glorified. And what does that have to do with a corn of wheat? Why did he bring that up? i got to die, and I'm going to be resurrected. And then he brings up a grain of wheat. Alright, it's very important what he says here. Very important. Has to do with his whole purpose for mankind and life. Now, he was going to die, so in the analogy here, he is a corn or a kernel of wheat. Right? That's the context. Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. You have a kernel of wheat that you harvested off of a wheat plant, and you set it on a shelf or in a jar somewhere and leave it on the pantry, whatever. It'll never produce a thing, will it? It'll just sit there. Maybe a mouse will eat it someday, who knows? But it doesn't accomplish anything. Now, when it dies, it goes into the ground, gets a little water on it, it pops open, and it begins to throw a little shoot out of the ground, a little green shoot, and then it grows and grows and grows till it gets up so tall, and then it has branched out by then, and it has lots of shoots, and each one of those shoots that sticks up has a head of wheat kernels on it about so long. Dozens and dozens of kernels on that one plant. Maybe, I have never sat and counted them, maybe hundreds on one wheat plant. They came from one, just one little one, in one spot, one plant. Now that's the analogy he's making of himself. I am a kernel of wheat. If I don't die, I don't do anybody any good. If I die and go down into the ground, I come back up, and then my life is valuable and does good and produces a great deal of wheat. So to him, 
it was very, very important that he become something important to a whole lot of people. This personage had to extend beyond himself, if you will. He didn't come here for his own personal enjoyment and then go back to his father and say, man, I had a lot of fun down there. I'd like to go back sometime. Uh, wasn't that way at all. He came down here for a purpose that his life might expand way beyond himself. That is a critical issue for you and I to understand. We are not here for ourselves. We are here so that our influence might expand way beyond ourselves. We tend to be a lot more narrow in our viewpoint as human beings. We start out as a little child who's not really concerned about anybody but himself. Thank you. And if I don't get what I want, I'm going to cry and beller and stamp my feet. Or pout. Or whatever they choose to do to show that they're not happy that everything they want is not being taken care of. And some, without training, never get beyond that. Probably the most, most people... Never get beyond that. Society teaches them to some degree that they need to be kind of careful what they do. Uh, you know, instead of just kicking your parents' shins, you have to learn somewhere along the line that if you shoot somebody, there are consequences. So they may still be just as selfish, but they hold it back because they selfishly don't want to go to prison or be hung. But they're still just as selfish as they ever were. They think of themselves, what they want uh, from a mate, what do I want from you? It's not what can I give you, what can I do for you, how can I make you happy, it's what can you do for me? And a lot of marriages never get beyond that. What can you do for me? It's very hard to transition to what can I do for you? Christ says the husband is to treat his wife as gently as he does his own skin. I want it the right temperature. I don't want any cuts on my cheek when I shave my beard. I, I, you know, I don't want my foot twisted. I want me taken care of beautifully. And I want everybody else to be sure that I'm taken care of wonderfully as well. Because we're selfish to the core is natural human beings. Just the way it is. But he is showing us here, I have to go way beyond that. My life is not one little kernel of wheat. I'm here to influence, to connect, to produce hundreds and hundreds and thousands and ultimately bushels and fields full. That's what we're here for. Not for ourselves. And people who live unto themselves don't grasp that concept. I'm here to help other people. I'm here to serve other people. I'm here to do whatever I can to make somebody else's life easier. Here, can I help you with that? What can I do for you? Oh, I see you have, you're doing this. Can I help? You've got to stretch it beyond you. If it's all self-absorbed and just me, then that's all it ever is. 
You just bundle them to yourself. And that bundle doesn't do much for anybody. So he's explaining here, I have to die and be glorified. I have to go into the ground, and I have to come up and influence and produce fruit way beyond myself. So producing wheat, grapes, whatever, you have to reach beyond yourself. God reaches beyond himself. Christ reached beyond himself. So we can't be on an island. A lot of people think they can be an island. There's a song about no man is an island, which is a very true song. You can't just live to yourself and expect to please God or the people around you. There are people who try that, guys that are bachelors all their lives, uh, for whatever reason. Um, sometimes there's nobody to marry. I mean, there are times when there are situations that you can't do anything about. But I mean, somebody who just wants to be alone and with himself all the time. And women can be that way too, spinsters, whatever you want to call them. Uh, they're content with just themselves, perhaps. Most people who live alone are not very content. They're kind of like people that live with somebody. They're not very content. <laughs> Most people aren't very content, period. But if you're doing things right, then you can be content in what God has given, whatever it might be, in the circumstance. Paul even said, I'm living alone. Uh, God laid this on me. I can handle it. And you ought to, too, at the end time. But if you can't control yourself, meaning physically, uh, then you should marry. But for the most part, he says, when it gets down to the end time, uh, you need to be thinking about God and His kingdom and His church and His people and obeying Him as well as you can, rather than getting into a marriage where your attention is more in pleasing a mate rather than in pleasing God. Now, that's not a normal circumstance. But it's a, it's a right at the end situation that Paul is talking about. Because that's the most important thing, is being in the kingdom of God. Being married in this life is wonderful, can be. <coughs> and it's good, and it's what God intended, okay, for mankind all the way through. But there comes a point where being in the kingdom of God is the most important thing by far than marriage or children or anything else. And that's the context he was talking about. So, if it die, it brings forth much fruit. You and I are told to bring much, forth much fruit. What does he tell us to do before we're baptized? He says the old self needs to die. You need to change the way you think, the way you act, the things you do, whatever you allow in your life needs to change, and then it needs to conform to this, not the rules of the Methodist, the Baptist, the Catholic, the Buddhist, or whatever else. It needs to conform to this. So the old self dies, and that's why you put down in the water, is it's symbolic of death. Because if we hold you down, you're going to die. 
But mercifully, God says, okay, you can still have life. It just needs to be a different life than what you've been leading up to now. So that's the key. Bring forth much fruit. So the old self has to die. The old way of thinking, the old way of acting. And then he says, he that loves his life shall lose it. And he that hates the life in this world uh, shall keep it. So he's, he's forcing us at baptism to make a choice. Do I want to live the life of the world the way I've been living it? Or do I want to change my life completely around and live according to what he wants? We have to make that choice. So if we love living the worldly way of life, we'll not be in the kingdom. If we decide to live his way of life, which brings happiness and joy, then we'll be in his kingdom. So he's explaining two very important things here. You need to extend beyond yourself and affect others and not just live unto yourself. And the way of the Satan in the world is not going to get you life eternal, but living God's way will. Biggest problem that is, we like Satan's way and our human nature tends to go his way. So to live God's way, a way that we can understand that our mind is right, thou shalt not kill. I understand that. I believe that. I shouldn't kill. Oh, man, you tempt me. You know, whatever. <laughs> whatever his law is, we're tempted sometime or another to break it. Maybe not that one as much as some others. Because most of us weren't raised around killing and fussing and the feuding and the fighting. Uh, like the Hatfields and McCoys. So two important things he gets to here. Uh, and if any man serve me, let him follow me. Go where he goes, do what he does, act like he acts, follow his footsteps, think his thoughts. Those are all scriptures we know. Any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. So he's explaining here what I've been talking about. If you're a kernel of wheat, you need to die, be planted, and grow toward others, toward increase. And then it will honor your father. So increase is something that's important to God. He says of his kingdom there will be no end and it will always increase. So he, believe it or not, likes people. He loves people. He created people. He made them in his image. People are very, very important to God. And he gave instruction to man about his attitude. I don't have much time left, but let's go back to Genesis 1. Because this is, this is what I've been leading toward today. Explaining some things from the New Testament, but we want to examine the Old Testament for what it adds, and then more in the New Testament. So here is the 
recreation of the earth. An A beginning, not B, but A. Uh, he made day and night, evening and morning were the first day, not morning and evening, sorry. Uh, we keep atonement, it says, from sundown to sundown there in Leviticus 23. And uh, so many places it talks about sunset to sunset. And that's the way it starts out here and repeats it seven times. And people read this, and then they say, well, it say the day was beginning and the sun was coming up. What shallow reasoning. Of course it does. We look at the beginning of the day from two different perspectives. The day with God begins at sunset. says it clearly over and over. What do we get to do at sunset? End of the workday. Then we have our own private time where we can eat and relax and pray and study and do things that we don't maybe can do during the day because we're working. Back then, uh, the work day was from 6 to 6, 12-hour days. It wasn't 8 hours like America. It was 12-hour days, 6 to 6. And that left you 12 hours to get everything else done. So God doesn't begin a day by making you go to work. He begins the day by letting you have your own time to do the things you need to do for yourself and your family and others. And then he lets you rest. You get to sleep. And after you sleep, the sun comes up and you can see to go to work again. So the day with God begins with rest and relaxation and preparing for your work part of your day. But it is like the dawn. Sure, it's important. Uh, my dad used to say, well, you have to work from can see to can't see. That's kind of the way it was. When you can't see, you have to quit. <laughs> and that's the way he worked, and that's the way he worked for me a lot. But that doesn't have to do with God's official beginning of the day. You keep the day from sunrise to sunset, you got a 12-hour Sabbath. But no, they don't. They keep it from sunrise to sunrise. So they get 24 hours. But it isn't biblical. Sorry. Anyway, I didn't mean to get off on that. Uh, he comes down in verse 19. The evening and the morning were the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly. The moving creature that has life and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every living creature that moves, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. So he made a few of each, and then they multiplied. And not only that, he told them to. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and, the fowl and let fowl multiply in the earth. So his intent from the very beginning was that whatever he created, he wanted it to multiply. Like that kernel of wheat. I took you to the New Testament before we came back here to establish that principle. Now, when God does something, he wants it to increase. You're the same way. If you're a farmer, you plant a field, 
You don't want to come back and pick the seeds back out and eat them next fall. You want them to generate and grow and produce more. So God's overall attitude then is he wants more production. Whatever he does, he wants more production. He tells you if you won't work, you don't eat. Very clearly. You don't feed somebody who won't work. You make them work so they can eat. So God wants us to produce something. And he told these animals when he first created them. He gave them instinct to know how to do this. He didn't give them the human spirit, the human mind in the same way. But his first instruction, okay, I've created you. Now go out and you two fish go make a school. And you do this and you do that and let's have lots of you. So anything he creates, he likes. And he wants more of it. Okay? When we get married, same deal. Let's have some kids, you know. Uh, it's not too far from our minds. Maybe we're not quite ready for it when it happens, but uh, it's there. You want to you wanna produce. You want to have somebody that looks somewhat like you, at least. God's the same way. So the first thing he did was instruct that. Then he made man... And he instructed man. The first instruction God gave mankind is very interesting to read. Let us make man, verse 26, in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and over the cattle of the earth and every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God made fish, cattle, sheep, goats, all kinds of animals, and birds at first, and he wanted there to be a lot of them. Why? Well, he wants us to have dominion over them. Created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. So he's admitting there that there are a few differences between male and female, but they're still very much like God. Fish and moose don't look like God. Uh, man does. A woman very similar. And God blessed them and God said to them, here's his first instruction to mankind. Right here. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. First thing he tells them, first words, be fruitful. <coughs> Excuse me. I started this sermon showing how we are to bear much fruit. Now, what does that mean? And we'll talk about it more. But being fruitful is something that is very important to God. So he told them there, as soon as they were made, first instruction ever, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. Now, I've said for a long time, that's the only thing that God ever told man that he actually did. Uh, we hopped right to it <laughs> and been doing it ever since. We forgot a long time ago that God said do it. Now we still do it, but if we don't like the ones that are born, we kill them. Uh, things have changed a lot. But his emotion, his feeling, his design, and his purpose was to have us replenish the earth 
and have lots of kids and have millions and billions of people. Just like you have millions and billions of fish and birds. Those are the numbers he intended. Because he likes increase. He likes fruit. He likes production. And I wanted to go back here to show that is his focus. He didn't want ten people. He didn't want a hundred people. When he decided to increase his kingdom, he says the increase of it will have no end. I want lots of people in my kingdom. I want it to be full of people. And he started out by explaining that. He gave us a lot more instruction different from that on through, didn't he? And you'll, you'll be hard-pressed to find anything in here that he said to do that we did after that. That we did. The only thing we ever did a really good job of, I guess. Uh, so he created him in his image, told him to do that, and to have dominion. And God said, Behold, I've given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat. So here he's showing that he made plants that would not only reproduce, but they would have fruit and they would have things on them that we could eat. So that was something he said in process as well. And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creeps, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. So he gave green herbs to the fowls, to the animals, to us, to eat. And he even says in the future, the lion will have the teeth of a cow and eat grass instead of animals. So at first, he did not intend for Adam and Eve to eat meat. Why is that? And why did he allow it soon thereafter? I remember that in the garden, Adam and Eve had everything perfect. The air temperature, uh, what was growing, they could eat. There had never been death. That's what it comes down to. Nothing had had to die. Death had not been introduced. Now we know that God produced clean and unclean animals and that it wasn't long before we could eat animals. But before they knew good from evil, there had been no such thing as death. Adam and Eve had never witnessed anything dying. No little birdie, no little chick, which you've experienced lately. They saw nothing die. So part of their mentality of not knowing good from evil meant that they did not know death in any form. And God told them, if you eat this, you are going to die. I find that interesting. Death was introduced when they ate of that tree. They didn't die right then, but they started the process toward it. Because they wouldn't have died otherwise. If they had not eaten of that, they would have lived forever and been part of the kingdom of God. Now, God had this all figured out way ahead of time. Christ was even, before they ever created man, 
it was determined that he would come down here and die for everybody's sins. They had that figured out way ahead of time because they knew what would happen. A, they knew Satan quite well. They knew how he thought and what he would do. And they knew that they had made man human and had given him a nature that made him want to follow Satan's way. So he knew that was going to happen. So the key was them introducing death to the earth, not it already just being around. Now we find that, what did God do right after they ate of what he told them not to eat? That one tree. They became ashamed and hid themselves and made little uh, leaf dresses because they realized they were naked. They had known that before. They were just you and me, babe. And no clothes, no need for, no embarrassment, no shame. But then they understood a lot of things. And they hid. Now what did God do for them? He immediately made them clothes of what? Animal skins. Leather. They had introduced death. And after they did it, he was willing to kill animals and use their hides to make them clothes. Leather clothes are endorsed by God from the beginning. Almost the beginning. And then we find that uh, Cain knew not to kill his brother. He hadn't been instructed here in the book. But obviously, Adam and Eve got a lot of instruction from God and had his laws. They even knew the difference between clean and unclean animals. Uh, Abel brought animal sacrifices, not plant sacrifices. And the animal sacrifices were acceptable to God, but the careth weren't for a sacrifice. Because somebody had to die to produce that sacrifice. And it was all looking forward toward the time Christ would have to die for all men's sins. So carrots can't do that. It takes blood to do that. So he doesn't say in here, a lot of those commandments weren't even codified until Israel came out of Egypt. But they knew them. They knew when the Sabbath was. Uh, Cain knew he shouldn't kill his brother, but he did anyway. And then he was upset and felt guilty because he knew it was against the rules. And Abel knew that he should bring a, an animal sacrifice, not a carrot and a cabbage. And Cain says, well, mine's just as good as yours is, and I'll take it because I like my carrots and cabbage. I grew them myself. And they're important to me. Now, there's a mistake you make. It's important to me. Is it important to God? That's what counts. So, those rules were instituted right away. And they began to be able to eat flesh, feet, killing it, right after they had introduced killing to the world. That they would die. God didn't want them to know that at first. So, it wasn't that... He was, had one set of rules, and then suddenly decided, well, those aren't any good, I'll make some new ones. He's not that indecisive. No, he wanted animal life protected until man had sinned 
and set in motion killing. Then he accepted it, made them leather clothes, and they could eat meat from then on. But it was something that was held back, and animal sacrifices were required to point to Christ in the New Testament. So that's how that began. I'm past time that I have allotted here, so I'll quit. But let's understand that God, as an overall point here, expects us to extend beyond ourselves. He told that to the animals and fish. He told it to Adam and Eve. And he's repeated it several times since, which we'll see some of. We are here to produce something other than happiness and joy for me. And that's what the whole Bible is about. So we'll leave it there for today.